like to welcome all of you here today. Can you please join me in thanking the worship team for their service to us this morning? <clears throat> Listen, I am fired up to be here today, um, to join all of you in this, to not only preach uh, the Word of God, but this particular passage. Uh, it's, a, it's a passion point of mine, and hopefully that will come across to you. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, get them open to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we are starting chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one, a seat back in front of you. If you open it and get to page 1055, you'll be right there with us, because uh, once you'll be able to follow along, and uh, we are thrilled that you are here today, especially if, if you're a guest here today, um, please, please hear our uh, overwhelming greeting to you. We know how hard it is to try something new, and so we're super thrilled that you're here, and I want to thank you for coming, and um, all of you join us online as well. Uh, we're happy to have you, I'm going to ask you all to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out on this time. Father, we are incredibly grateful uh, for your word. God, we're incredibly grateful for your people, for the opportunity that we have uh, to gather this morning. Um, and as we're thankful for what has already been ushered in, right? An, an opportunity to, to praise and worship you. And thank you that you, uh, you are, uh, inhabit the praise of your people. We know that you're here, God. We know it's not by any accident at all that, that the people who are in this room are in this room. And so we pray uh, that you'll just bring it home now. Uh, that you'll speak mildly through your word, that it uh, will not return to you void, but it will accomplish everything that you've set forth for it to accomplish this morning, uh, that, that, that you will be the one who speaks and encourages and convicts and draws, and that you'd be the one that gets the glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, you ever seen a little kid shoot a basketball? Right, at a standard side height, right? they, they pick up a ball that's uh, much bigger than them, and then they bring it all the way down their ankle, and they kind of like throw it up like that. Right? Now imagine the NBA player shot like that. That'd be an interesting game, right? And this was the idea behind uh, sort of my parents' basketball strategy for me growing up, is that they started me with a series of lower goals, right? Because they didn't want me to learn shooting from my ankles, right? They want me to learn the proper form, how to hold the ball, the hand placement, to follow through with the wrist flick, right? And it got to a point where uh, on a shorter goal than the standard 10 feet, I was getting pretty good at it. I was getting pretty confident with it. I thought I could make more shots than I would miss. And dad thought it was time to raise the goal to the standard 10 feet. And I protested. I was like, it's hard enough to learn to this level. Right? I was just getting to where I was good at it. Right? I was just getting the hang of it. Now you're going to make it way harder. i got to shoot higher and higher. And you're literally raising the bar. Right? Everything's going to be more difficult. So dad set me down. He looked at me. He said, dad. He said, Brett, I know, man. I know that you're, you're scared how hard it would be. But you're 26 years old. It's time that you learn to shoot at a goal of the standard height, right? Now, obviously, some of the details of that story are embellished. I was 19, okay? But I do remember when the basketball goal was raised, and it, it became way harder overnight. And I tell you that story because I had a very similar experience with ministry. I grew up in a Christian home. I, my family was active in church, and I had a pretty good idea of uh, of what I felt I was getting into when I felt the call of the Lord to uh, serve his church in full-time ministry. But I would describe to you that the majority of my experience with Christianity, right, in the majority of my experience in the local church, the focus is, was on what I've come to describe as maintenance mode. And here, here's what I mean by maintenance mode. That the, the, my relationship with God is the most important relationship in my life. And so there are things that I need to do as a follower of Jesus to help spur that relationship on. I need to have quiet times where I'm in, where in prayer and in the word. I need to be a part of a local church. I need to find community and groups. I need to serve different ways. And all to help pour gas on the fire of that relationship. 
Things that made me feel closer to God were elevated as of greater importance. Things that didn't were, were devalued and seen as less important. And in all this, the message that I got was this, that the job of the local church was to help me grow in my faith and assist me with maintenance mode. Now, there is some truth to that, but I'm gonna stress the word some because not all of that is biblical. But it felt, right, it feels important and enormous enough, right? And so when I, in my mind, when I entered into ministry, this was sort of the daunting task in front of me. You, you put on the very best services you can for the Lord. You help your people grow in their faith and deepen their walk. You manage a few difficult personalities and then you pray and hope people get saved. And that felt sufficiently terrifying to me. It felt hard enough. And so I'll never forget the season in my life when I saw clearly for the first time in the scriptures how much higher the bar is than that. And I remember vividly the competing emotions in me throughout this process. On the one hand, the uncontainable excitement, even rushing, rushes of adrenaline when I saw how God lays out the vision for multiplication in the scriptures, not maintenance. When I realized what a church could look like if that actually took root and, and if the focus wouldn't be on us, but how God could use what he's already given us to bless many others. But at the very same time, at the heights of that excitement were matched by a feeling of total dread because I knew almost instantly just how hard this would be. I knew how countercultural it was for the American church, how it was the opposite of everything that I had known and experienced, no matter how clearly it's laid out in the scriptures, how it's going to take an all-out affront against our sinful natures. And I can't help but wonder if Timothy felt the same way when he got to this portion of the letter that we're studying today. Now maybe, in fact likely, this isn't the first time he's heard this from Paul, but I can't help but wonder if he felt the same way when he heard this call from the first time from Paul. Because there's nothing. We studied all of 1 Timothy last year, six chapters. We've gone through 2 Timothy chapter one so far this year. There's nothing in those two letters that we've studied at all that has been easy. Not one thing. But in today's passage, Paul's gonna raise the bar to even newer heights. And so I'll open with this, that if you, if you have the focus of your Christian life is your individual walk with Jesus only. If what you consider begins and ends with what you prefer, what gets you closer to God only, if the, the driving impetus of your service to God isn't other people, including those you haven't even met yet, then I have a warning for you this morning. That when the light bulb goes off for multiplication, the call to multiplication scriptures can be an extreme jolt, an extreme wake up for your soul. And my encouragement to you today is to not run from that, but instead lean into it. God might actually want you to view your walk with him in a whole new light today. He might want you to view your relationship with the church in a whole new light today. He might be starting or, or continuing a journey where you learn a really powerful, life-changing truth that nothing God has ever done in your life was meant to end with you, not a single thing, not one. And so I'm going to invite Jeff McIntosh up to read today's passage. He's going to read for 2 Timothy chapter 2. He's going to read the first two verses for us. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with Jeff to honor the reading of God's word? Morning, Jeff. Morning, church. Uh, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right. Thank you, Jeff. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there. It is a simple calling, but do not confuse simple with easy. 
All right, and the first thing I want you to notice as we look at these two verses, I want you first to notice uh, the, the, the tone and the change in tone that Paul has here at the start of chapter two. All right, now if you've been with us, right, you've gone through us with, with this letter with us, you know that in chapter one, Paul's not exactly mincing words in this letter. Right? He knows that he's about to die. He knows this is the last letter he's gonna write to Timothy, so there's no fluff in here. In, in chapter one, he has been very open and overt with Timothy about many concerns that he has for Timothy about what Timothy might do or might fall into or might uh, step back into once Paul is gone. And then he closes chapter one by giving us two examples. An example of two people who deserted truth, an example of one guy who stayed faithful. And the idea was Timothy be one of the people who stay faithful, right? And then he gets really personal because he starts chapter two by saying, this is what you're gonna do, Timothy. The language in verse one is literally this, you therefore my son. He's taking a personal stake in him. He's taking ownership of not only Timothy, but Timothy's future. This is my prayer for you. This is what I'm charging you with. And the first thing that he tells him is to be strong in the Lord instead of being strong for the Lord. I'm reading from the CSB, verse one literally says, uh, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the Greek word uh, there for that we get from be strong literally means to be empowered, to be enabled, to be equipped in the grace of Jesus. Because we have this really well-meaning way about us. I think most of us have this, but it always fails. Right? And our well-meaning way is that in the face of adversity or in the face of a huge challenge, a huge call from God like multiplication that we'll unpack today, our, our go-to reaction, our gut reaction is that, yes, Lord, I want to be heroic for you. I'm going to be the one, God, that you need. I'm going to be the one that you're looking for. If everybody else fails you, I'll be the one that stays faithful. But we've got an example of that in the scriptures, don't we? Throughout the gospels, the one most willing to be heroic for Jesus was Peter. And it wasn't all bad. Okay, he meant well. And I think, I think oftentimes he gets criticized too harshly. For example, there were 12 disciples. One of them got out of the boat and walked on water. The rest were too afraid. The one who got out of the boat was Peter. There were 12 of those guys. One of them rightly identified Jesus as Messiah first. It was Peter. But you see sort of this confidence and bravado he has throughout the Gospels. And and it culminates at the Last Supper when Jesus tells his disciples that this very night, guys, into tomorrow morning, you're all going to be scattered. You're all going to leave. You're all going to desert me. And here's what we find in Mark 14. Because Peter doesn't like this, right? And Peter tells him, he tells Jesus, even if everyone falls away, I will not. He's not trying to make himself popular in the room he's in right there. He's like, Jesus, even if all these guys bail on you, don't worry, I've got you. And Jesus says to him, well, today, in fact, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Was this enough for Peter? No, he keeps insisting. No, Lord, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Now, how'd that work out for him? Not great. But you know what? After his tremendous failure we see a whole different Peter in John 21. Now, he's still Peter. He jumps out of the boat unnecessarily. He swims in when you could have just rowed in, right? But at that breakfast with Peter we have in John 20, he's with Jesus. He's humbler. He's quieter. He's less brash. And his confidence is no longer in himself, but in the Lord. And what you'll find is the rest of the New Testament, we see God doing amazing things through Peter. Because God doesn't need us to be strong or heroic for him. He wants us to find our strength in him. And I want you to know, this this isn't generic advice that Paul is giving Timothy. It's not a concept that he's disassociated with. 
In Paul's younger days, he, was, he had a lot of zeal, he had a lot of energy, he had a lot of passion. He was brash like Peter. Peter. He was super confident, and he was using these things to rise up through the ranks of Judaism quickly. And he used all those things, all those elements of his uh, confidence and personality to hunt down and persecute Christians. Until one day, we're told in Acts 9, that Jesus appears to him on the Damascus Road, and he appears in such power that he knocks Paul on the ground, and he blinds him. And this man who is walking, leading the procession into the city of Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians now has to be led by hand to the city because he can't even take care of himself. And then Jesus makes him sit and wait for three days, blind, not eating anything, having his entire world do shattered. And when he was weak and tired and hungry and afraid, that's when Jesus says, now I can use this man. And Paul understood this throughout the rest of his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, he, he writes about this thorn in the flesh that he says was, was used to torment him. This is not a good thing. And he pleads with the Lord to take it from him, and, this, and he records for us how the Lord responded in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he, being Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Paul, I don't need you to be heroic for me. I don't need you to be strong for me. My power is made perfect in your weakness. 1 Corinthians 15, he's writing to the same church. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul's saying, even the effort that I put out, right? even, even all the hard work I've done, it's all channeled, it's all funneled by the grace of God to me. It's not in my own power. Which, of course, brings us to Philippians 4, in which he's writing about his, he's found the ability to be content when he has a lot and content when he has nothing. And the reason why, he says, is that I'm able to do all things through him who strengthens me. You see how this was a core value for Paul in his life? He had decided he was going to be reliant on the power of God made available to him through the grace of Jesus in order to serve God in this life. He wasn't relying on his strength. He wasn't relying on his intellect. He wasn't relying on his ability or his power. He was empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so when he tells Timothy, Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace of Jesus, this is not a throwaway line. This isn't some cheap greeting. This is not a filler in the letter. It came straight from the heart of a man who knew that that type of living is the most abundant life there is. And by the way, Jesus loves us enough to tell us this. In John 15, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit. It's a wonderful promise. And then he says this, because you can do nothing without me. It's a hard truth, but it's one we need to know. We need to stop trying to be strong for Jesus and find our strength in Jesus. The second thing that we see here in, in the opening sections here of chapter 2 is that good biblical teaching is consistent. I want you to look at the first half of verse 2 because there's an interesting phrase that Paul adds here. He, he tells Timothy, what you've heard from me, and here's the phrase, in the presence of many witnesses. Okay? Now I want you to keep that in mind and look back at verse 13 of chapter 1, the one that Travis preached on a couple weeks ago. In which he tells Timothy this, Timothy, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. Right? And so he says, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many, many witnesses. And so he's taking Timothy's back, uh, in his, his mind back to a time when Timothy was Paul's protege and he traveled around with Paul. And he went to all these different cities and places where they planted churches. And he heard Paul speak hundreds upon hundreds of times to different audiences and different peoples in different cities and different towns and in different times. But there was one thing that never changed, and that was the message. 
And that's why Travis pointed out to us a couple weeks ago that Paul calls Timothy not to sound teaching, not to hold to sound teaching, but the verse 13 actually says to the pattern of sound teaching. The Greek word there means a form or an outline, like an architect's drawing that gives you boundaries to stay within. And this pattern, this form was incredibly important in the early church. It still is today, but super important in the early church because the New Testament was still being written. And so this is what we're told about this pattern. In the first church in Acts 2, we're told this about them, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the start of the pattern. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All right, so the apostles were those who had been with Jesus, right? And they, they were appointed as uh, apostolic leaders of the early church, right? And they took what Jesus taught them, and, he, and they shared it with the church. And Jesus promises to them in the book of John when he says, when the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, comes, he will remind you of literally everything I've told you so that you can share it with others. And so they did this. They formed this pattern of sound teaching. Then Paul, after he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road, is appointed by Jesus as an apostle. And so even after that experience, he went and was trained in the gospel and trained in the apostles' teaching that added to his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And then Paul went out and established churches all over the known world. And in each one, he trained and taught them this same form, this same pattern of teaching. Because it was incredibly important that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, be preserved. In fact, a lot of the, the writings we have in the New Testament are when Paul gets word that somebody's departing from it and he's writing immediately correct it. In Galatians chapter 1 is one such book. He writes to the church there, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of God and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another gospel. But there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And this is the powerful verse. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. It was incredibly important to hold and protect this pattern of teaching, that it be consistent throughout. 1 Corinthians 15, he tells that church, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and here's the key phrase, and on which you've taken your stand. You receive the gospel, you take your stand, and you do not depart from it. By the way, nothing has changed. We receive, we proclaim, we believe upon, and we take our stand on the exact same gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that tells us that all of us are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God so that we owe a holy, awesome God a debt for our sin. And if that sin is not paid, then, then, then we will die in our sins and spend an entire eternity in hell, uh, enduring his wrath. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born as a man. Right? He lived a sinless life that we have not lived, and his excruciating death on the cross was, was paid. Was di he died to pay the price and the debt of sin that we owe God. And on the third day, he rose from the dead to offer victory over the grave to any who would believe in him. And the result is this, that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection alone, you'll be saved from the penalty of death, your sins will be forgiven, you'll be adopted as a child of God, and your eternity will be, will be secure in Jesus Christ. It's the same gospel that Peter preached in Acts 2. It's the same gospel that Paul taught his church. It's the same gospel that Timothy taught. It's the same gospel we take our stand on today, and it will not change. And you can see in Paul's letters how important and vital this was. And Paul wanted the church in his day to line themselves up with a pattern of teaching. And we're to do the same today. We do not take this word and we do not take the Bible and measure it to our current day and culture. We do not take this word and measure it to our feelings and desires and then determine its validity or worth. No, we measure ourselves in our day and age and our, our desires to the word of God and where we are off, that's what needs corrected. 
It started with the apostles. It continued to Paul. It went to Timothy. And here in chapter 2, Paul's great concern now is that it does not stop there. Because the language is different. Chapter 1, verse 13, Timothy is to hold to the pattern. Chapter 1, verse 14, he's to guard it. But now, Timothy is told to spread it. Because multiplication is a necessity, not an option. See, throughout time, God's word has been under attack. This started all the way back in the garden for the, with the temptation of the first sin. You remember how it started? Did God really say? It's been this tactic of the enemy from the beginning. And throughout the history of church, this pattern of sound teaching has come under attack, oftentimes by people within the church. And yet the word of God still stands. And the word of the Lord will endure forever because it is living and breathing and active and cuts sharper than a two-edged sword and it never returns to God void but always accomplishes the purposes that he set out for it. Why? Because God cares deeply about his word. It is by his power that it has been sustained and kept and guarded and preserved and protected. But it's also because of the people that God used in that. People like Paul and people like Timothy, who not only guarded and kept the good deposit, but also because they multiplied it. Look at verse 2. What you have heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, now commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, what, what you heard from me, verse, chapter 1, is guard it and preserve it. Chapter 2, now commit it to others so they can guard it and then commit it to others who can guard it and commit it to others who can guard it and commit it to others and on and on and on and on. Paul put this pattern of multiplication in place in every single church he established because he understood that this was the vision the church of Jesus is founded upon. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and he is establishing what what the church will be about. What he has before him are the men who will, will be the apostles of the church and here's what he tells them. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you read that verse at first notion, you might think he's just making geogra- geographical notations, but he's not. Jesus is telling the, the apostles what the church's mission is. Their impact will start right where they are in Jerusalem, and then it will expand out from there to the surrounding areas in Judea, and then it will expand out from there to Samaria, who, though it's geographically close to them, is far removed from them culturally and spiritually, and it will expand from there to the ends of the earth. Keeps multiplying further and further. This ever-expanding impact would be absolutely impossible if their focus was to remain only on themselves or their church experience or their spiritual growth. This is why this is such a key passage in this letter. Because for seven chapters, six in 1 Timothy and one in 2 Timothy, Paul has challenged Timothy to contend for truth in his church, to step into God's calling, to rekindle his gift, to fight the good fight, to hold to the pattern and guard the good deposit, to point elders and leaders, and all of it is good, and all of it is important, and all of it's necessary. But if you had the incorrect view All of it could be applied in a way that focused only on Timothy and only on his church at Ephesus. It could all be done in maintenance mode. Unless Timothy understood the heart behind the mission of the church. And the heart behind the mission of the church is that we take what's been given to us by God, we guard it, and then we multiply it. And I cannot, cannot be more serious about this. We don't have the option of passing on this. The ramifications of that are too damaging. There's a book in the Old Testament, a book of Joshua, that is filled. It's not a perfect book, okay? 
but it's filled with one victory after another after another because the, throughout, through Joshua's, Joshua's leadership, God is giving his people possession of the promised land. And not every story is a great, huge success, but most of them are. And the end of the book, right, ends with Israel no longer in slavery, they're no longer wandering the wilderness, but they're right where God promised they would be. And if it was a Disney movie, you know how it would end? And they lived happily ever after. But you know what the next book in the Bible is? It's the book of Judges. Historically, it tells us what happened right after the book of Joshua, and it's an absolute mess. It's a train wreck. There's all sorts of chaos. There's all sorts of suffering. There's all sorts of pain. It is, it is one of the hardest reads in the entire Bible, and you don't get too far in the book before you find out why. In the second chapter of Judges, we're told this, that the people worshiped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all the Lord's great works that he had done for Israel. That's an incredible legacy, right? Who wouldn't want that? There's an entire generation that stayed faithful to the Lord. That's awesome. But the chapter's not done. Because the very next verse tells us of Joshua's death. And then it tells, the verse after that tells us that there's a whole generation passed. And that's when we find this in Judges 2. That that whole generation was also gathered to the ancestors. And after them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. And so the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed other gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to them, and they angered the Lord. There's one question that passage should scream to you, and it's this. Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know? Why didn't they know the Lord? Why didn't they know anything the Lord had done? And the only possible answer is that the previous generation was strong on preservation. It was, they were strong on personal faithfulness to the Lord. They were strong on devotion to the Lord, and they completely abandoned the idea of multiplication. They didn't go beyond themselves. Listen, my relationship with God cannot begin and end with just me. It cannot be just me and my house. It cannot be just me and my family. It cannot be just me and my generation. It cannot be just me and my little group. It cannot be just me and my church or wherever we want to put the boundary line that God doesn't put it. As followers of Jesus as a church, we must always strive for personal growth in the Lord as well as making a way for those we have yet to reach and, and be moved for those we haven't even met yet. We must have a vision for those who are to come after us. This is incredibly crucial to the mission. Because this pattern of teaching that was to be guarded and multiplied continues to us today. What Paul is handing to Timothy was not to end with Timothy, and so the principles apply just as much to us as they did Timothy. And typically, if you're here a lot, you know that when I close a sermon, I, I like to give you multiple different ways to respond. I like to move the target around the room and hit multiple different people, but this one is big enough, this one is important enough, this one is far-reaching enough, I don't want to muddy the waters today or talk about anything else. There's one clear thing that I want us to grasp today as a response, and it's this, that maintenance is good, but multiplication is far better. There is nothing that God has done in your life, nothing he's allowed in your life, nothing he's ordained in your life, that the benefits of that were ever meant to end with you. Your relationship with Jesus is the most important relationship in your life. That relationship needs investment from you. It needs to be tended to. It needs to be fed like every other relationship you have. None of that is bad. In fact, it's necessary, but it cannot stop there. Your relationship with Jesus cannot be egocentric. 
Your growth in him cannot be your only concern. Last week I mentioned uh, to you the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, where at the end of that story, right, two servants are told, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that was what we should aspire to. But one was told, you wicked, lazy servant. But do you remember, do you recall what those servants did to get to that point? There's one servant who was given 10 talents, and when the master came back to settle, he didn't return the 10 talents. He brought 10 more on top of it. He multiplied. The second servant was told, well done, my good and faithful servant, was given five talents. And when the master came back, he didn't just return the five. He brought five more. He had multiplied. But the one who's called wicked and lazy, he took what the master gave him, and he preserved it, and he protected it, and he guarded it. He didn't lose a shred of it. He didn't lose it at all. And yet he's still called wicked and lazy because he didn't multiply it at all. Listen, eternal life in heaven is a tremendous blessing and a gift that comes from salvation in Jesus. It's huge. But if the only gain to the kingdom of God from your salvation is that you spend eternity in heaven, that is a huge miss. If the only thing you get from your college experience is a degree, that is a major waste. If the only thing you get from your career is a paycheck, you are leaving so much off the table. If the only people blessed by your home and your children and your gifts and your skills and your talents and abilities are you and your house, you are literally burying your talents. If the only thing that you get from church is the deepening of your personal walk, you're missing out on the very mission of church. And if you see the job of the local church as if it exists only to deepen your walk or match your preferences or guard the experiences that you value, you have missed entirely what God has called his church to do. It is not the job of the church to help you maintain your walk. We are to push you and train you and equip you and encourage you and help you multiply at all times and in every way. And here, we have to take seriously this call of multiplication. We have to take seriously the idea that we will take what God has given us, what God has allowed to come our way, what he has blessed us with, what he has done in our lives, and commit that those things will not end with us. That we will indeed comfort others with the comfort we have received from him in our sufferings. That we will be open and and generous with the resources that he has so freely lavished on us. That we will forgive just as the Lord has forgiven us. That we will indeed share the gospel that has changed our lives and altered our eternities. That we will disciple those who can disciple others who can disciple others. That we will teach those who can teach others who can teach others. That we will connect with and feed in, feed and invest in and build up college students that were sent to our town for a short time and send them out equipped so that they can strengthen the local church of wherever it is they settle. And that when the Lord allows, we will plant, we will revitalize struggling churches, we will go overseas and be the sending church that he commands us to be because we have no choice in this matter. We have none. He has demanded it of us. And so we must be obedient. We've already taken steps of obedience to the church towards being a multiplying, sending church. There are people from this church right now who are over the air in Africa somewhere are going to land later today to strengthen the church in Paleywala. For maintenance purposes, we get nothing from that. For multiplication purposes, that will bless this church tremendously. There are people who have sacrificially given and continually to do so to allow us to take steps towards a building expansion that will get us one step closer to planning the church. The number of people who are meeting in groups and group leaders looking for to raise up the next group leader among their own is growing. The number of team leaders around here who are investing in others and training in others and developing others is beginning to take root in our culture. And I want to commit to this to you openly today. 
that if you take steps towards multiplication, if you want to expand what you do for God in, in ways that even might seem scary to you, if you want to be obedient to his calling and you want to focus more outside of just yourself, I want you to know that we are here for you. We are here for you. We will come right alongside you. We will encourage you. We will equip you. We will pray with you. We will train you. We will cheer you on and celebrate with you. It's why Hebrews 10 says the church is to spur one another on to love and good deeds. That if you are ready to shift from maintenance mode only and to pursue multiplication, we actually have strategies and pathways designed for you. And we'd love to sit down with you and actually create a plan just for you. And we promise you, I'm promising you, I won't just yell at you from stage to do this. We will roll up our sleeves and join you in it because God has called us to give our lives to this vision. And you know what we found? We found that multiplication is incredibly rewarding and it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. We've seen how many hurdles both our enemy and our sinful nature throws in our way. We've seen how imperfect our attempts at it have been a lot of times. It is not and it will not be easy. In fact, it's harder than you think already. But we find our strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and we say yes to what he calls us to. And the thing that is undeniable that we've noticed is that every time we take a step of obedience towards multiplication as a church, God comes in behind that and blesses it beyond our imagination. God has been incredibly good to each of us. Think the number of blessings he's given us, the life that he's bestowed on us, the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, the experiences that he's ordained, the lessons that we've learned in suffering, the assistance that we've received along the way, resources, family, neighbors, coworkers, and more that he's placed in our lives, our church family, our church budget, the talents and gifts that we have within this congregation. I wonder today, I wonder loud, that if the master came to settle accounts with us this very day, Would you and would we be able to show him that we took our 10 talents and we've multiplied it and brought 10 more? Or would we only return to him exactly nothing more than what he gave us? There's nothing that God has done in your life that is designed, intended, or meant to end with you only. We must shift from maintenance mode to multiplication mode. We must get in the rhythm of asking the Lord to help you look outside yourself and leverage what he's done in your life for his glory and for the good of others. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, from Terre Haute to the Wabash Valley to the inner circles to the ends of the earth, from your walk with Christ to your family's walk with Christ to those God sends along your way to those an ocean removed and a generation removed. Man, I can't tell you how much, if Paul's letter to Timothy was, Timothy, guard your own faith and make your church the best church it can be, how much easier that would have been. So much easier. But that's not what it says. So we don't have an option. We cannot be myopic in our faith. We must multiply. We have no choice but to. Let's pray. Father, I am thankful for the strength that can be found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'm thankful that in your sovereign wisdom, you call us to a vision, you call us to a mission that is literally beyond us. It's beyond ourselves, it's beyond our own experiences, it's beyond our comfort zone, and yes, Lord, it's beyond our ability. Because you want us to operate relying on the strength that comes from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And so, Lord, I first pray for anybody in this room who's not yet surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that the gospel has not taken root, that if they died today, they would face an eternity in hell because they have not pleaded the blood of Jesus on their behalf. Lord, would this moment be their moment of salvation? Would they turn to you now and trust you for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life? And then, Lord, for the rest of us, I know how daunting, I know how daunting this call to multiplication can be. I know how you can go your entire life in church and not hear it expressed clearly, though it's right there in the scriptures the whole time. I know how it can change so much. And so I pray specifically for the people who for this was a jolt this morning, that this, this, this really warped their view of what their life and their Christian walk was supposed to be about. Would you be gracious to them right now? Would you guard them and protect them from the lies of the enemy who's trying to convince them now this is not that big of a deal. You can stay in maintenance mode. God, for all of us, would you, would your spirit right now make clear to us, Lord, starting with me and for everyone in this room, ways that we are not taking what you have given us and blessing multiple other people, ways that we are receiving from you and keeping it just to ourselves. And ways that we have our, our mindset our, our heartbeat, our passion stops just with us or our family. And Lord, as you make those abundantly clear, would we repent of those to you today? Would we again find our strength in the grace that comes in Jesus Christ as you forgive us? And would you enable us? Would you spur us on? Would you give us the mindset and the passion for multiplication? We ask that you do this for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and let's sing together. And-